I'm Bodie B. This is Death Tracks, February the 11th, 2020. Welcome to the show. I love this song, and uh, sometimes we just want to step out of this whole story. And this this song kind of helps me sometimes take a break from this story. But many of us are actually too sensitive for the world. So of course we have strategies for how to protect ourselves. Thanks for being with us today. Come away with me in the night. Come away with me and I will write you a song. Come away with me. Come away where they can't tempt us with their lies. And I want to walk with you on a cloudy day in fields where the yellow grass grows knee high. So won't you try to Come away with me and we'll kiss on a mountain top. Come away with me and I'll never stop loving you. Okay, here we are, Tuesday. If this is February the 11th, 2020, then we are live together, and great to be alive, and um, great to be together. Those two things are extremely important in my life, to feel connected to a community, and uh, a certain aspect of my community and the community showed up yesterday for a big uh, ceremony celebration honoring uh, prayer um, connecting time for Ramdas. Oh. 
over at the MAC here on Maui at the Maui Cultural Center, and we were pretty packed in there. I think uh, a 1,500 seat theater. Maybe you saw it wherever you are. It was streaming everywhere, and um, a number of his friends for 40 or 50 years were the luminaries on the stage to share uh, some piece of the of the Ramdas story. And of course, um, when Roshi Joan Halifax asked us how many people in here um, had a direct eye-to-eye uh, -eye connection uh, or some uh, intimate connection in terms of uh, being in a, in a small room with them and um, most everybody in this theater raised their hands. Only a few people had not, uh, when, when Roshi Joan asked, only a few people had not uh, seen Ramdas in person in that room. So clearly there were th at least 1,500 stories to be told about somebody's encounter with Ramdas, either through reading the book Be Here Now uh, and then eventually uh, coming to a place where he was speaking or was or, or came to his home. A lot of us got to actually spend time with him in his home. And um, all the stories that came from that, uh, many of us uh, completely uh, changed in some way by that period of time. And when that period of time was uh, the Vietnam War and draft dodging and... Um, being uh, being the age where we, we uh, many of us could have been drafted or were drafted, uh, many of us also starting to take uh, psychedelic drugs and smoking marijuana, and encountering uh, what sounded like a deeper truth than uh, we'd been exposed to up to that point by Barbara Ramdas, Richard Alpert, who, as many of you know, was a psych uh, psychologist professor at Harvard until he got kicked out uh, with uh, Timothy Leary. Uh, and then he went on to not only explore uh, what was being revealed to him through the psychedelic experience, but it led him on a trip to India where he encountered uh, a saint who um, he completely fell in love with. Uh, and in fact, um, what was even bigger for him was that he fell in love with everybody else when after he encountered such deep and unconditional love through Saint Neem Karoli Baba. And then, of course, the, as the story unfolded, him coming back to America and uh, many of us drawn to uh, his, read, his writings, and many of us drawn to um, going to any event that um, he was at uh, within, you know, driving distance, etc., and then somewhere in, um, I can't remember when, he had a stroke. Um, he was stroked, as he said. Um, and, that, and he turned, somehow he transformed that stroke into a gift, again, to continue his own journey of uh, transforming himself into, a, um, into loving awareness, you know, in, into devotional uh, servant of Ram, Ram Das and uh, again continued on teaching us um, not only through his words but through how he um, continued to show up for his own life and his own um, for his stroke and for the life of after a stroke and um, and then he and then for many of us it was good fortune who live on Maui that he came to live on Maui so many of us got to go when when there wasn't that many of us we'd come over to his home every Sunday and sing and uh, meditate and um, feast together. And then that became uh, too big for his home. But 
me personally, he, he joined on to our board of directors when we were first starting Doorway into Light in 2006. And clearly, both of us recognizing, actually Ramdas, myself, and my wife Leila, recognizing that in some ways we were carrying on his legacy of uh, conscious care for the dying, um, being with dying people, and transforming uh, not only um, how we be with dying people, but uh, how we show up for our own approaching death. And um, so uh, my good fortune spent quite a bit of time with Ramdas collaborating and um, in conversation and bouncing ideas and ref his reflections and him mirroring um, what was going on for me and and all and the two of us creating some really beautiful events here on Maui uh, he was at last year's he's been at every year's uh, international death doula training where doctors and nurses and social workers and hospice people and um, body workers and healers and artists and musicians and regular uh, folk um, have come to our April training. So this April will be the first April uh, Ramdas has not physically shown up at, but we'll, we'll certainly invoke his presence and welcome him there. Um, so it was a beautiful event last night. Yesterday, um, Roshi Joan, Frank Ostaseski, uh, who spoke beautifully about his own grief um, and and his willingness to uh, grieve and um, and be sad over the loss of his good friend. And I appreciated hearing that from Roshi Joan Halifax as well um, because we are <clears throat> mostly so illiterate around grief and yet um, so many of us are grieving. And... Uh, it's how we how we work with that grief, uh, how we be with that grief, um, is is basically how we navigate being in a world um, where so much um, so much is uh, uh, so much is at stake. Uh, so so much is at stake right now. Uh, many of us recognize that we are at such a critical point in the world uh, in terms of our politics, in terms of this country. Uh, politically, it l looks to me like we pretty much uh, ripped up the Constitution the other day as far as having a true uh, democracy or at least a republic that represents the people. And of course, that pales in the light of uh, the environmental, uh, ecological um, changes that are happening, whether we can all agree on what's causing them. I think we can all agree that. And the weather's weather's changing most everywhere, and we're seeing more uh, landslides and um, flooding and wildfires and <coughs> excuse me and earthquakes and um, I mean we're all feeling what's ha what just happened and is happening still in Australia and um, <clears throat> either either we carry on either we carry on uh, in business as usual like somehow protecting ourselves from the truth of what's happening and how much change is happening and will will continue to happen um, with um, trying to trying to be normal um, keep on keeping on uh, imagining good schools for our kids and etc 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 and um, in some ways that um, and certainly not just for us but we we carry on to not freak out um, our kids you know our grandkids and um, because they still uh, retain so much innocence and naivety uh, and so much beauty that 
uh, they deserve to have their childhood not be impacted so soon or too soon by the realities of, wh of what's happening and what's coming. So I've been te I started teaching a class at the college uh, last Thursday called The Space Between Hope and Hopeless. And uh, eight women showed up and um, I'm not surprised that um, it, was, it was all women or um, not at all. Um, I see that our trainings, it's mostly women and I think it's so 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 cool and courageous and powerful when men attune to their heart and their grief and their compassion and empathy and and want to serve in that way so Thursday night was our first class and uh, it's two, it's two more Thursdays this coming Thursday and next week and uh, it's a beautiful experiment because I've um, I've I've taught and led groups around this these topics but but not in this format of um, th of wait of a week between two weeks between each one week between each each encounter. Uh, so I'm looking forward to Thursday night, and because so many of us swing between the hope that things things somehow will turn out um, beautifully, and there'll be an incredibly beautiful and magical world for our kids and our grandkids and their grandkids. And, and oftentimes many of us uh, swing to the hopeless place of how, of, how big, of how big what's happening in the world is and what it looks like is coming and what likely is coming, that it may very well become a much uh, harder and difficult and worse before and if it gets better. And I, I imagine that um, I, won't, I won't live long enough to see the worst of it, but my children and grandchildren likely will. And that's the hopeless uh, that, we're, that we're doomed, really. Uh, that many scientists say it's too late, we can't turn back from what we've initiated and what's now building its own momentum. And, and then there are scientists who say, well, we can still, if we all do this, uh, if we all change to a, a simpler, um, less energy uh, costly life, if we get out of the fossil fuel uh, world, um, we can turn it around. Uh, although um, it grieves me that I don't know that everyone would be willing to change their lifestyles to, um, to turn it around. And maybe that's the saddest part of the story for me. Um, so we grieve and either we just ignore that grief and carry on like everything's going to be all right um, <clears throat> or we or maybe we just throw up our hands and hearts to oh my god it's oh my god it's the end we're we're we're, we're the generation that's going to witness the the end of uh, humanity as as it's as we've known it and as we've lived it and as our history has shown us and um and then the third, uh, I think the third response is how to not get mired in the, <clears throat> excuse me, in the hopelessness and the immensity of what's at stake and how fragile it all is right now. And somehow uh, we, we are somehow empowered to uh, show up even more fully and more deeply in our lives to, to, meet, um, to meet whatever it is. And in some ways that's, that's no different than the truth that we're going to die and we don't know when that when we actually embrace that, when we actually embrace that, it's a very empowering place to come out of assuming we have plenty of time, which, which is what most of us are doing.
Let's see what's happening here. Wear sunscreen. I think I'll start that again. Um, there you go. Ladies and gentlemen of the class of 99, wear sunscreen. If I could offer you only one tip for the future, sunscreen would be it. The long-term benefits of sunscreen have been proved by scientists, whereas the rest of my advice has no basis more reliable than my own meandering experience. I will dispense this advice now. Enjoy the power and beauty of your youth. Never mind. You will not understand the power and beauty of your youth until they've faded. But trust me, in 20 years, you look back at photos of yourself and recall in a way you can't grasp now how much possibility lay before you and how fabulous you really looked. You are not as fat as you imagine. Don't worry about the future. Or worry, but know that worrying is as effective as trying to solve an algebra equation by chewing bubblegum. The real troubles in your life are apt to be things that never crossed your worried mind. The kind that blindsides you at 4 p.m. on some idle Tuesday. Do one thing every day that scares you. Sing. Don't be reckless with other people's hearts. Don't put up with people who are reckless with yours. Floss. Don't waste your time on jealousy. Sometimes you're ahead. Sometimes you're behind. The race is long. And in the end, it's only with yourself. Remember compliments you receive. Forget the insults. If you succeed in doing this, tell me how. Keep your old love letters Throw away your old bank statements. Stretch. Don't feel guilty if you don't know what you want to do with your life. The most interesting people I know didn't know at 22 what they wanted to do with their lives. Some of the most interesting 40-year-olds I know still don't. Get plenty of calcium. Be kind to your needs. You'll miss them when they're gone. Maybe you'll marry. Maybe you won't. Maybe you'll have children, maybe you won't. Maybe you'll divorce at 40. Maybe you'll dance the funky chicken on your 75th wedding anniversary. Whatever you do, don't congratulate yourself too much or berate yourself either. Your choices are half chance. So are everybody else's. Enjoy your body. Use it every way you can. Don't be afraid of it or what other people think of it. It's the greatest instrument you'll ever own. Even if you have nowhere to do it but in your own living room, read the directions, even if you don't follow them. Do not read beauty magazines. They will only make you feel ugly. Brother and sister, together we'll make it through. Someday a spirit will take you and guide you there. Just helping you out 
Get to know your parents. You never know when they'll be gone for good. Be nice to your siblings. They're your best link to your past and the people most likely to stick with you in the future. Understand that friends come and go, but with a precious few, you should hold on. Work hard to bridge the gaps in geography and lifestyle, because the older you get, more you need the people you knew when you were young. Live in New York City once, but leave before it makes you hard. Live in Northern California once, but leave before it makes you soft. Travel. Accept certain inalienable truths. Prices will rise, politicians will philander, you too will get old. And when you do, you'll fantasize that when you were young, Prices were reasonable, politicians were noble, and children respected their elders. Respect your elders. Don't expect anyone else to support you. Maybe you have a trust fund, maybe you'll have a wealthy spouse, but you never know when either one might run out. Don't mess too much with your hair, or by the time you're 40, it will look 85. Be careful whose advice you buy. But be patient with those who supply it. Advice is a form of nostalgia. Dispensing it is a way of fishing the past from the disposal, wiping it off, painting over the ugly parts, and recycling it for more than it's worth. But trust me, on the sunscreen. Death Tracks on KEKU 88.5 FM, the voice of Maui. This is public radio, folks, and maybe more so than ever. We need public radio in the face of uh, everything being eaten by corporate conglomerates that have their own uh, story to tell based on really what they want to sell. Um, wow, a little poem there. They have their story to tell based on what they want to sell. And so they sell us uh, their stories of the news, of what's important to think about. And, of course, they know that that triggers certain emotional, uh, psychological responses in us that often mean we want to um, do something to um, not, let's say, not feel. That, I think we're in, the, we're in a culture of not feeling and keep on shopping. And oftentimes a deep feeling itself gets in the way of um, shopping because... Uh, when you know you're going to die and you don't know when or, or you're in deep grief, and many of us are, um, it kind of puts a, 
puts a little damper on buying stuff. So I run into more and more people now that listen to this radio show, and I'm so glad uh, to to meet some of my listening audience. And I say, well, call me up on the show. So, you know, I'd love you to call me up on the show today, 808-873-3435. If you have some feelings about, uh, maybe you went to the Ramdas event yesterday. Uh, Maybe you've got something on your heart that you can anonymously, uh, because we are community. You know, whatever you're connected to is part of your community. And so we're it, and the people listening to the show are it. And uh, it's this very safe place to uh, talk about what's on your heart. Um, for one thing, we don't see you and don't necessarily know who you are. Um, for another, that's exactly what uh, this is about, uh, making safe space for uh, honesty, authenticity, straight from the heart. And uh, I know many people, many people are are grieving and, and feeling somewhat hopeless and uh, what's the point and uh, in anxiety and fear to some degree. I mean, we do our best to... Um, work with um, the truth of impermanence. Um, in, frank, in fact, yesterday at the at this uh, ceremony event for Ramdas, I uh, really appreciated uh, Roshi Joan Halifax and Frank Ostaseski uh, speaking about how much they miss their friend um, in in the light of their deep awareness and knowing about impermanence and about um, death itself. Uh, both of them having worked for so many years in the in the field of uh, conscious aging, dying, and death. Uh, Frank um, re- really touched, I was really moved by uh, him talking about um, uh, us not, not employing any kind of spiritual override, uh, thinking it was something we needed to get over, because uh, uh, for some reason, if we were really spiritual, we wouldn't cry and grieve and be sad and, and sorrowful and... Um, and he really uh, added his voice to that. That's that's not spiritual at all. Like um, uh, I thought, I thought when he, you know this whole notion of managing our grief, which of course is kind of another way of saying controlling something that doesn't want to be controlled. And most of us, whether we admit it or not, are to some degree a control freaks and doing our best to hold on to who we think we are and what we think is going on and. It turns out we expend a whole lot of energy holding on to uh, something that um, is an illusion, thinking that we're holding on to something that we'll be able to hold on to it. I mean, again, we come back to the space between hope and hopeless. Uh, Where can we really stand in the midst of um, what's happening? Uh, The the shaky uh, instability, unstableness of everything out in, in front of us. What do, where do we stand that that is stable? What do we stand on? And I think Ramdas's message, message big time was we stand on loving awareness itself, and not only as something out there, but as something uh, that we are loving awareness. But Frank talked about um, how much he missed his friend and how sad he was, and um, and maybe it was very personal when he said he wished somebody would have just been able to uh, show up for him and be there. Uh, in his sorrowness rather than uh, people trying to fix it for him or helping him get over it or or uh, employing some kind of spiritual so-called spiritual uh, practice to um, come out of the sorrow and sadness and tears and 
I thought he said, you know, uh, we talk about managing grief, but do we ever talk about managing joy? Like, as again, as if um, joy would, and why would any of us ever think we had to manage our joy? But somehow, uh, oftentimes, we hear about managing grief. So I really appreciated that from Frank yesterday. Again, the number here, 808-873-3435. I'm going to play a... Uh, five-minute clip, I think, from Stephen Jenkinson on uh, why grief is love. And um, it's apropos to what I'm speaking about right now. And two, it looks like uh, we'll be bringing Stephen Jenkinson over here in uh, the end of October this year. So this is Stephen Jenkinson. And, and, and what is the state of grief and how does that play into all of this stuff? I guess that's by definition after the event. Not always. Not never. Okay. No. Well, one of the ways to talk about something is by talking about what it isn't. And that's how it can become manifest in a different way than we're accustomed to. So you finger the edges of its absence, and that begins to articulate a woundedness. And you recognize the wound, and from that you recognize what caused it, and then, then you're in a different understanding. So grief's not a feeling. That's the big thing. Grief is usually mistaken for something on the same sort of general plane as despair and depression and hopelessness and da 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 And nobody's looking forward to it. Nobody's trying to get good at it. <laughs> Nobody comes to, goes to grief school, right? They go to school for how not to grieve. So if grief were a feeling, then its principal attribute would be that it would be transitory, which all feelings are. Feelings are weather, you know. They're not architecture. They're the weather. Comes, goes, as it should. Even the deepest feelings you have are transient, because you don't have them all the time, yeah? But grief, though, grief stays. When you become a practitioner of grief, it stays. Now, you don't get invited to many parties, I can tell you from personal experience, if you become a practitioner of grief. But your understanding of love is renovated for all time. And, and here's what it is to me. You could say, what's the relationship between grief and love? Well, if you're in love, you don't have any grief. What? Has your love included another human at any time in the proceedings? If it has, you know that's a lie. If you're in love, grief will be part of the deal. And you'll mistake that for being the end of love if you're a rookie in these matters. You could come to your third marriage still thinking that, and you'll be into your fourth marriage before you know it. If you're insisting that these two things have to be kept separate, that the only way love can, can burn away is that grief is burned off, right? So we get together in order not to be lonely, and that our loneliness is more acute than at any time when we were by ourselves. Yeah. So, it could be that these are twins and not adversaries at all. That they're not designed to annihilate the other one or to replace it or to make it obsolete. They are there to see to it that the other one appears, which is what twins do by virtue of the resemblance. And only one of them is in the room, but you kind of know what the other one looks like. Just from that, that's how I understand it. 
to put it in a phrase, it's going to sound a little formulaic and clever, maybe. You could say that grief is a way of loving that which has slipped from view. Grief is a way of loving. I don't think many people would be challenged by that. You wouldn't grieve something that you didn't have some love attachment to, I'm sure. Not just people. I mean, times of your life, favorite cities that you were obliged to leave. You know, there's a lot of ways of understanding this. But I'm going to do this with it in hopes that, that the relationship between them becomes more full and more apparent. So if, if grief is a way of loving that which has slipped from view, then it must stand that love is a way of grieving that which has not yet done so. Love is the willingness to love, finally understanding that your love of this will not extend its days by one. So you're going to have to find another reason to love this person or this time or this city or this moment in your life without adding to it to legitimize loving it. In other words, love becomes a recognition of its temporariness. And you love the temporariness too. And that, that's grown-up stuff. Hmm. And there's just no training in the popular kind of romance culture, you know, where everything is just sort of glandular satisfaction, you know. And as soon as it's not that anymore and there's too much work involved and all that, eh, no. No, grief is a way of loving, but love's a way of grieving too. There was Stephen Jenkinson uh, connecting grief and love in very, very powerful way. He's got a, in my view, a very unique take on it all, and, and certainly rings. Um, I think I think Stephen speaks truth about this. I do. <clears throat> Again, the number here, 808-873-3435. If this is February the 11th, 2020, you can call us up. So I'm, I'm going to stay in this um, theme of grief a little bit um, till our guest, the top of the hour. And by the way, if you, if you, if you end up watching this because I posted on Facebook, a lot of times there are big gaps of silence in the recording because I play commercial music. I play different, you know, genres of music to kind of um, space out and break up the uh, the storylines. And Facebook cuts them out because while I can play the music on this nonprofit radio station, I don't personally have a license to play it on Facebook, which is why you may hear long periods of silence. Uh, which are either good times to just sit in silence yourself um, or or whatever else you do in 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 that in those moments um, maybe you 're just done with the whole thing um, but here we are grieving uh opening up to the possibility that it 's an honorable and beautiful and deeply important thing to grieve and to not feel that we need to manage our grief. And in fact, um, the way it looks to me and why I'm teaching a class called The Space Between Hope and Hopeless is because there's tremendous power um, to to stand on the place of 
our own grieving. And in fact, it's quite disempowering to and fracturing of our own psyche to not let ourselves grieve fully. To not let ourselves grieve fully. So this is from the New Yorker. Uh, what if we stop pretending? The climate apocalypse is coming. To prepare, to prepare for it, we need to admit that we can't prevent it. So I'll read this and maybe I'll stop and comment about it. <clears throat> there is infinite hope, Kafka tells us, only not for us. And, and again, I, I'll break, while I'm reading, I'll break if you want to call in a comment about this or uh, anything else that's um, stirring in your heart, let's say. But I'll read on. This is fittingly mystical epigram from a writer whose characters strive for ostensibly reaching goals and tragically or amusingly never managing to get any closer to them. But it seems to me in our rapidly darkening world that the converse of Kafka's quip is equally true. There is no hope except for us. I'm talking, of course, about climate change, the struggle to rein in global carbon emissions and keep the planet from melting down has the feel of Kafka's fiction. The goal has been clear for 30 years, and despite earnest efforts, we've made essentially no progress toward reaching it. Today, the scientific evidence verges on irrefutable. If you're younger than 60, you have a good chance of witnessing the radical destabilization of life on Earth. <clears throat> Massive crop failures, apocalyptic fires, imploding economies, epic flooding, hundreds of millions of refugees fleeing regions made uninhabitable by extreme heat or permanent drought. If you're under 30, you're all but guaranteed to witness it. Well, I'm going to comment here because I'm over 60 and we're already seeing some of these things happening. And we're, we're seeing even even today how how much our economy uh, is destabilized by the c coronavirus um, that's now exploding across the world. I'll read on. We're, we're already seeing the destabilization. Uh, we may not agree on what causes it, but we're certainly all witnessing it. We're certainly witnessing it. I'll read on. <clears throat> Excuse me. If you care about the planet and about the people and animals who live on it, there are two ways to think about this. You can keep on hoping that catastrophe is preventable and feel ever more frustrated or enraged by the world's inaction. Or you can accept that disaster is coming and begin to rethink what it means to have hope. Even at this late date, expressions of unrealistic hope continued to abound. Hardly a day seems to pass without my reading that it's time to roll up our sleeves and save the planet. That the problem of climate change can be solved, quote unquote, if we summon the collective will. Although this message was probably still true in 1988, when the science became fully clear, we've e emitted as much atmospheric carbon in the past 30 years 
as we did in the previous 200 years of industrialization. The facts have changed, but something, the message, somehow the message stays the same. Psychologically, this denial makes sense. Despite the outrageous fact that I'll soon be dead forever, I live in the present, not the future. Given a choice between an alarming abstraction, death, and the reassuring evidence of my senses, breakfast, my mind prefers to focus on the latter. The planet, too, is still marvelously intact, still basically normal, seasons changing, another election year coming, new comedies on Netflix, and its impending collapse is even harder to wrap my mind around than death. Other kinds of apocalypse, whether religious or thermonuclear or asteroidal, at least have the binary neatness of dying. One moment the world is there, the next moment it's gone forever. Climate apocalypse, by contrast, is messy. It will take the forms of increasingly severe crises, compounding chaotically until civilization begins to fray. Things will get very bad, but maybe not too soon, and maybe not for everyone, and maybe not for me. <sighs> yep. You can all relate to that. Maybe not for me. Or my kids. Or my grandkids. Or my friends. I'll read on. Some of the denial, however, is more willful. The evil of the Republican Party's position on climate science is well known, but denial is entrenched in progressive politics, too, or at least in its rhetoric. The Green New Deal, the blueprint for some of the most substantial proposals put forth on the issue, is still framed as our last chance to avert catastrophe and save the planet by way of gargantuan renewable energy projects. Many of the groups that support those proposals deploy the language of stopping climate change or imply that there's still time to prevent it. Unlike the political right, the left prides itself on listening to climate scientists who do indeed allow that catastrophe is theoretically avertable. But not everyone seems to be listening carefully. The stress falls on the, wor on the word theoretically. Our atmosphere and oceans can absorb only so much heat before climate change, intensified by various feedback loops, spins completely out of control. The consensus among scientists and policymakers is that we'll pass the point of no return. I don't know if I need to continue reading this. We need to approach zero emissions globally in the next three decades. That is to say, a tall order. Well, you get the message of this story. Um, we're doomed. And why would we uh, continue to live in the illusion that that's not true? And what a great question. I mean, uh, we come back uh, as well to uh, we're going to die and we don't know when. In some ways, it's, a, it's the same story. Can we really come out of this illusion of thinking we have lots of time, or that somehow we deserve lots of time, etc., etc., etc. And rather than um, continuing to devise uh, ways to uh, ignore it or be distracted by that truth, 
And, and of course, we live in a culture that uh, I, I would say encourages us completely to be distracted and avoiding that truth because, again, <clears throat> it, it cuts down on our impulse to go shopping and buy stuff. Uh, and so um, uh, what, some of the many ways we distract ourselves, uh, food, uh, certainly well no, a well-known distraction, uh, a, well, a well-known way of stuffing feelings, because oftentimes we get wh- what we call gut feelings, which are really uh, sometimes where the emotions show up in our belly, in our gut. Um, and so we eat to stuff those feelings and cover them up. But certainly eating isn't the only uh, well-known distraction. There's uh, there's sex, there's drugs, there's alcohol, uh, there's Netflix and Facebook and uh, pornography and you name it. Uh, I'm sure I left out a bunch of them. I'm sure I left out a bunch of them, which will, um, I think, will segue into our guest today, Leilani. Uh, who's who, who runs the needle exchange program uh, on Oahu? Um, that'll be really interesting, and that's coming right up at um, about fifteen minutes. So I'll 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 read something else here because um, it's just so much the same, and this is called facing the fact of my death. And you, you'll see yourself the parallels between facing the fact that each one of us are going to die and we don't know when with this um, with this looming uh, truth that maybe uh, we're witnessing a cataclysmic catastrophe and breakdown and chaos uh, in in what's coming in terms of global climate change again whatever whatever reasons we attribute to it facing the fact of my death as a child confronting my mortality was terrifying now it's an opportunity. Again, I'll comment here. If we accept the truth that, uh, I don't know, I won't say the truth. If we accept the possibility that we're, we may witness um, the end of uh, humanity as we know it, that we're, that we're, um, we may witness looming um, ecological breakdown and catastrophe. If we could actually open to that, maybe that's true. How do we actually turn that into something that doesn't completely um, disconnect us from who we are? Actually, maybe it just helps us uh, work even more um, energetically towards the truth of who we are and why we're here and, and how we can show up uh, in life and in the dying um, certainly how we're going to show up in our own dying time and how we're going to show up for people around us who are dying who may need our assist, our support, at least our support, you know, washing dishes and checking the mail and buying groceries and being able to sit in the presence of dying and death. So let's see, where was I? As a young, I'm reading now, as a young boy, I recall very clearly telling my mother with an innocent defiance that I wish that I had never been born because I will die someday. Wow. Uh, Again, the number here, if you want to break into this story, 808-873-3435. I love Collins. You know I love Collins. But I'll keep reading. Wow. I wished I had never been born because I'll die someday. That's a powerful thing to, to say as a young person. 
I can't recall my mother's response, but I'm sure it worried her and left her feeling hurt. I can, <laughs> I can imagine if one of my grandchildren or one of my kids when they were really young had said, I wish I'd never been born because I'll die someday. I mean, the, what, what a powerful thing for a young person to say. You know, wow. That's that's big. I mean, that's big. And I, I, I myself would have had maybe similar experiences of, of having some worry and uh, worry about my kid, um, my young child or grandchild, thinking about that they didn't know that they wanted to be here because they were going to die one day. Wow. Hey, there's Leilani. Um, but I can't hear you yet. Can you hear me? Will you wave to me if you can hear me? Nope. Okay, well, we'll take a little time here, but I'll read on a little bit. Um, reading on, but I was frustrated, angry, afraid. Well, I knew that people died, it had suddenly dawned on me that I would be among them, that I will die someday. It was an epiphany, one I would rather have not had. I recall thinking, I didn't sign up for this. Who's playing this terrible joke on me? Again, I'll comment that um, it's so much easier for us to um, accept the fact that other people will die. and and But that's different than accepting the truth that we're going to die. I'm going to die. Not me. I'm, I'm, and because I kind of surround myself in this work now and have been called and immersed in this work, it's fairly... Um, it's much more real to me that I'm going to die one day. Okay, I'll read on. Strange, I realized, but there I was, a child, elated to be alive, feeling the warmth of the sun on my brown skin, playing with friends in the streets, eating ice cream, celebrating birthdays, enjoying unconditional love shown to me by my mother and my older sister. Why did I have so much joy and shared love just to someday have it all taken away, gone forever? And I understood gone forever to mean never ever existing again, done, kaput. It made absolutely no sense to me. I experienced the fact of my death as a cosmic slight. I couldn't get it out of my head. Even at that young age, I began to feel the heavy weight of my finitude. I couldn't put it down even though I wanted to. And death was now too close. It was dreadful, that sense of unthinking longevity invulnerability, cavalier confidence, hell just being a child, gave way to a deep and frightening reality, reality that I could not control. The childlike omnipotence collapsed and left me facing an abyss. The abstract fact of death had become personal. I'd come to realize that not a single moment is guaranteed not another breath, another blink of an eye, another hug from my mother, or clash with my sister. As I grew older, this feeling of existential dread, dread stayed with me, of being thrown into existence without any clear sense of why we're here, of wondering whether or not God exists, whether or not the cosmos has any meaning beyond what we give it, whether or not we have immortal souls, whether or not there is anything to be discovered after death, or whether death is the final absurd moment of our being. I was like the French-Algerian existentialist Albert Camus, 
who wrote of having, quote, conscious certainty of a death without hope, unquote. This is good stuff. <clears throat> I'll read on. As an adult, this uncanniness goes unabated. It has not stopped. There are times when, like the 17th century thinker, Blase Pascal, I feel trapped between two infinities of meaninglessness. <clears throat> Excuse me. In his unfinished work, Pensis, Pascal writes, When I consider the short duration of my life, swallowed up in an eternity before and after, the small space I fill engulfed in the infinite immensity of spaces, whereof I know nothing, and which know nothing of me, I am terrified. The eternal silence of these infinite spaces alarms me. I wonder why I'm a here rather than there, now rather than then. Who set me here? But whose order and design have this place and time been destined for me? The fact of death is like a haunting. It frequents me, entangled in everything I do. It's just beneath my pillow as I sleep strolling next to me as I casually walk from one class to the next, inserting its presence between each heartbeat in my chest, forcing its way into my consciousness when I say, I love you, to my children each night, assuring me that it can, it, that it can unravel the many promises that I continue to make, threatening the appointments that I need to keep. The sense of haunting is what the Harvard professor Cornell West calls the death shudder. Of this shudder, in the face of death, he writes, Yes, dread and terror were involved, but also perplexity, exploration. Where does non-existence take you? What does it mean to be stripped of your own consciousness? How do we live with an idea that we are always tantalizingly close to death? At any moment, the bridge can collapse. Uh, this is great stuff. This is great stuff. I continue to shudder. Yet there is something about facing the fact of death that invites us to double back, to see our existence, our lives differently. The scholar Mark Rothkowski, reflecting on Martin Heidegger's notion, <clears throat> excuse me again, of being toward death, writes, in rare moments we can be returned to ourselves by an experience of anxiety which disrupts the tranquility of the everyday world by emptying it of its usual significance and meaning. In these moments, none of our projects or commitments make sense to us anymore, and we see that we are committed to roles prescribed to us by the they or the crowd. Well, I'm going I'm to stop there to uh, segue into the end of the first part of the show, and then we'll move into our interviewing Leilani. Um, but that's um again the the truth of the truth of we're going to die and we don't know when it turns out to be a very um, powerful and empowering uh, truth because we we could all say we know that's true but very few of us actually have have moved that knowledge into a real knowing to where it affects how we live each day and it's beautiful and uh, and I see it in my own life and, and in other people's lives that have uh, brought death into their uh, spiritual practice and into their life, and seeing how we change through that deeper knowing. So I'm going to give uh, give some of our underwriters uh, some time to and sponsors 
some time to um, speak, and then we'll be back. Stay with us. I'm Bodie B. This is Death Tracks.